Anyway, we're back in 1 Samuel. Not back in 1 Samuel. We're still in 1 Samuel. Um, and we're looking at verses 23, and we'll see if we can get through 24 too. So uh, let's open a word of prayer, and then we'll, we'll get started. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you we can gather here in this place. And, and Lord, pray that you would um, help us to uh, focus tonight on your word and, and the, just the practical application uh, of this text to our hearts and lives and what we can learn from Saul and, and David. And Lord, we just pray that you would um, minister to our hearts. We pray for those who are sick. I think of Jenna, who's getting ready to travel uh, up north with her mom and has this uh, flu or whatever she has. Lord, pray that you would minister to her body, help her to feel better. And uh, Lord, also pray for Ken, uh, Sargus, who fell today and uh, may have uh, sprained some ligaments in his in his shoulder. And just pray that you would um, uh, help him to recover. I know right now. It's, just the wrong time for all this to happen for him because he's so busy at work and just pray that he'd be able to recover from that and that his co-workers would be able to pitch in and help him out during this time and so we just look forward to uh, our study night we thank you and we praise you in jesus name amen amen all right we're in first samuel chapter 23 and we've been going through our study of uh, samuel and we've seen the early years of the life of Samuel up to the uh, of of David up to this point, sorry, and uh, we've been tracing his life as he rises from being a shepherd boy in the hills of Bethlehem there to the throne of Israel as as their king. It's uh, as we've seen, kind of an unlikely story, and the journey has many twists, many turns. Along the way, a lot of them are surprising, so each week you don't know what's going to happen next. And so by God's direction, though, David is making a new life, a new beginning. Um, And nothing about that is ever easy. Little by little, this teenage shepherd is learning how to be a king. And uh, along the way, some of the lessons are painful. And uh, that's obviously a practical application for us as we go through our lives. But God knows what he's doing, and that's kind of the underlining theme here. God is behind all this. Even though, as we've been going through this study, everything that seems to happen to David uh, seems random. It seems like a random event, one after the other, and yet behind it stands the Lord, and he guides these events in the life of David uh, with his uh, omnipotent, invisible hand. And as we, we're going to read through... Uh, chapter 23 here and just because you may not uh, in our lives and even in david life in david's life uh, experience god in a uh, a real way we don't see him or hear him or feel him that doesn't mean he's not there and david is kind of going through this right now he's with us no matter what and he's with david no matter what even in the darkest moments, even when we feel that maybe we've been forgotten or abandoned. We're going to see how this plays out in David's life uh, tonight. But when we're in those times in the wilderness in our lives, and we begin to realize, why why has God left us? <laughs> uh, and then we discover that he's been with us the whole way, and he's never left us at all. And just at the right moment, he makes his presence known once again to us. And so if you had to sum up chapter 23, it would be basically this, how much Saul was David's enemy. Just how much Saul became David's enemy. Now remember, this was, 
you know, they had a relationship at one point that was beneficial. David would go before Saul when he was ailing and play his his uh, his instrument and and would drive the evil spirit away, and it was beneficial. And David has done nothing but obey and and do everything that God has told him to do up to this point. And here you see in chapter 23, you see just how much Saul hates David. Just unsolicited hatred. And then chapter 24, we see how quickly David is to forgive and love Saul, even though Saul hates him and wants to kill him. Uh, it's, It's contingent upon David to forgive, to move on, and to love Saul. And so we're going to start off here in chapter 23, verse 1. And uh, we'll try to work our way through this. It says, Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against uh, Calah and are robbing the, th- the threshing floors. The threshing floors was where they made the grain, which was basically how you got bread. So it was very important that you had a threshing floor that was not being robbed and the food wasn't being taken. And just to remind you, up to this point, Saul is chasing David down like a dog to kill him. That's what Saul is focused on, that one thing and one thing only. Uh, Remember, Saul was the actual king of Israel at this time. He was the one that possessed the crown. Even though David was the real king. Saul was the king that who wanted? The people, remember? The people wanted a king, so God said, all right, I'll give you a king. This isn't going to be good for you, but I'll give it to you. And they saw Saul and how he looked and mighty valor, valor and all this stuff, warrior. So they, they picked him, and uh, God gave him gave the people what they prayed for. And even though Samuel the whole time is saying, boy, you people don't know what you're asking for. This is not going to be good for you. This king's going to take advantage of you. They still wanted a king like everybody else had a king. So Saul, at this point in time, the actual king of Israel, David was the real king. David was the one that God wanted to be king over Israel. And that's exactly what's going to happen. But Saul was the one who possessed the crown at this time. So he wielded that power. He had the power of, of a king. And... Because he had heard some rumors, and some of the people began to uh, lift up the name of David because he went out and he slew Goliath when Saul didn't do anything. And people were chanting in the streets, wow, you know, David uh, killed thousands, but Saul, or I mean, Saul killed thousands, but David killed tens of thousands. And Saul just got jealous, and he felt threatened. And so he used his power and his revenge and his animosity toward David to focus on one thing, and that was to kill David because he didn't want to give up his crown. Remember, Saul was kind of a reluctant king in the beginning. Remember, he was hiding and didn't want to be noticed. He was hiding in the baggage when Samuel was trying to crown him and all this stuff. Well, he got a taste of power, <laughs> and apparently he enjoyed it. Uh, now, he's not, he's not following the Lord at this time. As a matter of fact, We've gone through this section of Scripture where the, the, whole, the God's Spirit was taken from him, and now he has this tormenting spirit from God, this troubling spirit from God that comes upon him at times, and it's really you know, causing some havoc in his life. He didn't want to give up his crown. And he realized, well, David's a threat to this crown. I'd rather have my son Jonathan become king and keep it in the family 
But that wasn't going to happen because Samuel already told him because of his disobedience chapters before that this is taken from you. You're no longer going to rule long, long term in Israel as their king and neither will anybody in your family. So he's having to deal with all that. So from chapter 18 onward, what we've been seeing is Saul trying to track down David and kill him. And it goes back and forth, every chapter, back and forth. Close call after close call. And it seems like God always makes a way for David to escape. Remember, he was hiding in a cave. Then he had to fake an illness, mental illness, because he got um, uh, caught in the city of Gath. And uh, that's where Goliath was from, by the way. That was his hometown. And he had killed Goliath. And he ended up in Goliath's hometown. And they captured him, or they were going to capture him. And basically, he didn't know what else to do, so he just started acting like a nut. Started drooling on himself, and they said, I get this, this guy. I don't need another crazy person like that. And so he faked a mental illness to get out of that bind in the city of Gath. And now he's out there living. And Saul is still trying to hunt him down. Um, Saul is in control of Israel, he's in control of all the people that he has under his, under his authority. So he wields a lot of, a lot of power. He's had spies everywhere. That he he put a uh, APB out on David, all points bullet. And if you see David, let me know because I'm coming to kill him. And so everybody in the country probably put out a reward, that kind of a stuff. And so everybody in the in in under King Saul was looking for David. And here's David in no man's land. He had to leave Israel because obviously Saul's in charge of Israel. And back in chapter 20, verse 20 to 20 or 22. 1 Samuel 22, we read this. Um, in verse 20, it says, But one of the sons of, of uh, Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abathar, escaped and fled after David. So, wiped everybody out. Um, Abathar, one of the, the, the priests there, who saw them, saw Saul kill all the other priests of the Lord. He slaughtered them all. Uh, this this guy escapes and he comes to David and he tells him, hey, you know, this guy's going to hunt you down. He's going to kill you. And so David, out of compassion, says, you know what? Just hang with me. Stay with me. Don't be afraid. Verse 23, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me, you shall have safekeeping. In other words, I'm going to keep you safe. And uh, the only problem was is he's inviting this guy for, to stay with him, but he has nowhere to go. I mean, he's literally in the wilderness. He can't go anywhere. He can't go to Israel. He can't go to, into the land of the Philistines because he killed Goliath. They're after him too. He probably couldn't go back to Egypt. Maybe he could try, but they'd probably say, yeah, remember that plague thing? We, you know, we don't want you people here get lost. So he hears about this. this uh, they tell him about Kela, this, this, this Jewish city, which is part of Judah. It's on the border of the land with the Philistines. And so what would happen is the Philistines would come across the border, <clears throat> go into Kela, rob them of all their grain that they had on the threshing floor, and then go back into their land. And this went on, and nobody could stop it. And so they were taking advantages of them. Remember before, when back in uh, Gideon's day, the Midianites did the same thing. The Midianites would come across the border, go into the threshing floor, take everything, and then run back across and the bible says that there was no judge in israel who could deal with this until god raised up gideon and then gideon was able to 
to deal with it. Well, now Israel doesn't have a judge. They have a king. And his name is Saul. And Saul's not interested in defending his own people. He's not interested in that at this point in time. He's not interested in, in defending his own country. He's only interested in one thing. What's that? Killing David. <laughs> he wants David set on a platter. He's really possessed with this. And obviously, uh, Saul is not a guy who's a multitasker. He can't chew gum and walk at the same time. So he is so focused on this, he's giving up, he's willing to give up the national security of his whole country for the sake of a personal vendetta. That's really what he's doing. Um, but David's not like that. David's willing to go, as we see here in verse 2, and, and rescue these people. So it says, they're robbing the threshing floor. Verse 2, therefore David inquired of the Lord, shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, go and attack the Philistines and save Kela. But David's men said to him, behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Kela against the armies of the Philistines? In other words, are you crazy, David? Why would we do this? You know, this is, this is nuts. We're, we're in a safe place, at least somewhat. Um, but, you know, right now, at least today, we're still in danger. But if we march right into the enemy's territory, what do you think about that? You just killed their, their big giant guy, Goliath, a couple chapters before. I'm sure they're on the watch out for you. Verse 4 says, Then David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Kela, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Kela and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Kela. So here we see um, David being willing to, first of all, um, do what's asked of him. God gives him this victory at Kela because he's willing to obey the Lord. The first thing he does when he hears this news, he doesn't say, let's go get him. What does he do? It says in verse 2, therefore David inquired of the Lord. And um, there's a couple interesting points here to help us understand. Up to this point, David and his men are in the, the forest of Hereth. They're in Judah, in the land of Judah. This is where, where David kind of uh, had his, his roots. And it's a good hiding place. It's naturally uh, kind of a good hiding place because the men don't want to leave it. They know that, hey, this is a good place to be in the forest, be hidden away. But the city of Kela was out on the plains. And it was going near the Philistine border. So you're, you're moving from a, a forested situation where you have you know, proper foliage to cover you and, and you can hide, things like that. You probably got caves. And now they're going out into this desert plain where you're, you're just a moving target. All right, so the men are not chickens. They're not, they're not fearful, but they're saying, they're questioning the, the logic of this, this move just to kind of move out in the open like that. If they leave the forest, they'll be out in the open and they could be wiped out by the Philistines just like that. And then Saul could, you know, catch them maybe before they try to <coughs> return to the forest or whatever. And so they just don't think the danger is worth the risk. So David inquires of the Lord. And so they, the men kind of say, you know, hey, let them defend themselves. But he, he inquires of the Lord not just once, but twice. And both times the Lord tells him, Go and attack the Philistines who were attacking Kela. 
And uh, he, he wants that to be very clear. There's two things here to help us understand this. First of all, David is unwilling to help without hearing from the Lord. He just didn't logically say, yeah, let's go. He wasn't just a, you know, uh, 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 kind of a, a warrior kind of guy. Yeah, let's go to the fight. Oh, who cares what the Lord thinks? No. You know, it, it wasn't that way at all. He said, no, I, I got to figure out what the Lord wants me to do. That was the most important thing to David at this juncture in his life. Um, he's not trying to leverage his reputation. He's not thinking of himself. His only question in this matter was, what does God want me to do? That's it. And really, that should be our question each and every day, right? What does God want me to do? Let's set our agenda aside and ask the Lord, what do you want me to do? Our only desire should be to do what the Lord wants of us. And so many times that gets clouded by circumstances. It gets clouded by our own will, our own wants, our own desires. Um, The second thing here is David immediately obeyed once he knew God's will. He didn't wait. He didn't hesitate. And so once you know what God wants you to do, the biblical principle here is just do it. Case closed. You don't have to pray about it anymore. You don't have to wait around anymore. If God clearly indicates that he wants you to do something, then do it. And David doesn't complain about the danger. You notice this. It's his men that are complaining. He doesn't. He just simply rises up and he does his duty. And you can also say that if David had been looking out for himself, uh, he would have ignored these people in Caleb. <laughs> Because he's walking right into a trap, really. I mean, that's kind of what it is. Uh, King Saul should have sent his army to protect his village, which was Caleb. That was his people. But where was King Saul? King Saul was too busy hunting down David. See how his, his, the, the role reverses totally. Here's Saul, the king of these people. He should be the one protecting these people. But he's trying to chase down David. And ironically, David raises up, or God raises up David to protect the people that are really against him. It's kind of of an ironic thing. And so God sometimes pieces these things together in ways that if we would think, oh, I know how it's going to work out. No, we don't. We never can figure that out. Secondly here, you see David on the run because God gives him a warning. Look at verse 7. Um, in verse 6 there, it says, this is how God was speaking to David, by the way. Some people say, well, how did God talk to him? Did he just talk to him? No. He used the, the Urim and the Thurim that they used to use, kind of like lots, you know, when they cast lots. It's similar to that. We don't know a lot about this. But it says in verse 6, when Abathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David, to Calah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. This was a, a cloak that the priests wore, and within this cloak, they would have this this way of discerning God's will. And so apparently he did this not just once, but twice. And each time, the indication was, no, you need to go to this city and you need to help these people. So in verse 7, it says there, now it was told Saul that David had come to Caleb. Like I said, he has spies everywhere. He knows exactly what's going on. He's got his little GPS on David's cloak or something. You know, he's just tracking him. And uh, so it was told Saul that David had come to Caleb. And Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. In other words, I got him. 
I finally got this guy right where I want him to be. And uh, apparently the, this was kind of a fortified place. And so he figured, hey, once David got in there, these people are going to help me and we're going we're gonna, to, I'll finally get him. Verse 8, and Saul summoned all the people to war to go down to Cala, not to protect Cala from the Philistines, which that was his responsibility as king to protect his people, right? He's not doing that. What's he doing? To besiege David and his men. He's still on this one-track thing of hunting down David. And you have two men here going in totally opposite directions when you, when, when you talk about God's will. Both men say they want God's will. Um, that's what Saul says there. God has given him into my hand. Saul didn't know God. Saul didn't, he wasn't concerned with that. He, this is just a, you know, he, he's thinking, you know, hopeful thoughts here, I think. But, but only one man truly wants it, and that is David. Saul wants to do what Saul wants to do. And uh, he mistook his personal desires, and he's done this before in his life, Saul did, for the will of God. And then he proceeded to interpret, misinterpret, you might say, events on the basis that he wanted instead of what God wanted. And sometimes we do that in life. You know, we, we're, we're faced with a certain decision, and then, you know, we want that decision so much, we're willing to read whatever happens throughout the day. Well, maybe that's kind of confirming that, because, you know, this happened. At, and, and, and sometimes it's, it's just a bunch of hogwash, okay? That's maybe not what God wants you to do, but we, we want to do what we want to do so much, we begin to believe that what we want to do is what God wants us to do. And so when David realizes Saul may come after him at this city and kill him, he uses this priest ephod to kind of discern. And he asks God two questions. Will Saul come after me and Caleb? The answer from the Lord is, yes, he's going to come. He's going to come. And then secondly, he says, well, will these people turn me over to Saul? Will the people of Caleb turn me over to Saul? Once again, God answers affirmatively, yes, that's going to happen. But even realizing his danger, David took his men and he hit the road. Once again, he took off after this happened. He moved from one place to another, trying to stay one step ahead of Saul. And so it says here in verse um, uh, verse 8, that uh, Saul is going to go down there and besiege David. And then David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him, verse 9, and he said to Abathar the priest, bring the ephod here. Then David said, O God, O Lord, God of Israel, your servant surely has heard that Saul seeks to come to Cala and destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Cala surround me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, God of Israel, please tell your servant. And they would use the Urim and Thurim there to kind of figure out the answer. How this worked, we don't know, but because the Bible just doesn't tell us about it. But that's how they discern the Lord's will. Um, and then he says, and there he says, and the Lord said, he will come down. And then David said, well, are they going to surrender me? And the Lord said, they will surrender you. And then verse 13, look at what it says. Then David and his men, who were about 600 at this point, so his popularity is growing. He started with 400, now he's got 600. So there's people seeing that Saul is just in this for himself. And they're obviously deserting Saul, and they're joining David's ranks because his little army is growing here. It says they arose and they departed uh, from Cala, and they went wherever they could go. In other words, the idea is they didn't know where they were going. They just kind of ran. 
when Saul was told that David had escaped from Kayla, he gave up the expedition. In other words, once again, this happens time and time again. David's in the forest, and apparently, you know, he, he uh, uh, gets tipped off, whatever, that he might come in here to Kayla and, and, and capture me. It happens to be so. So they, once they save the city there, they take off. And they, they did deliver this this uh, this blow to the, the to the Philistines there as well. So it says in verse thirteen. Um, then David and his men, who were about six hundred, rose and departed from Caleb, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Caleb, he gave up the expedition. In other words, up you know, tricked again. He got away again. And David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness. A lot of people think this is maybe in Getty there where they don't know exactly where this is, but might be, uh, if you go over there on the way to Masada, you see this rough area before you get there on the right, and they say a lot of times people go up there and hide because it's an excellent place to hide. A lot of caves, a lot of corridors you could hide in. And uh, so the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Zeph, and Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. So we see here that David um, is in this in this, uh, this this situation here, and then God sends him uh, a friend. Now this this village Ziph that's mentioned there was located about seven miles southeast of Hebron, and it's very remote. It's very desolate. Uh, and it offered a lot of different places to hide there. So it was an excellent place to play hide-and-seek with somebody. Um, and Saul kept looking for David, but notice it says God would not let him find him. God is in control. Uh, I don't know if David feels that way at this point. Saul doesn't feel that way at this point. But God is in control of all this. Now, you know, when you think of David, you think of his mental health at this point. You think of his emotional state. He's basically a, a, a refuge running for his life every day, looking over his shoulder. Um, and it seems that no matter what he does, as much as he obeys what God tells him to do, what happens? Things just get worse. It's not getting better for David. I mean, here he rescues a whole village only to end up being trapped almost and once again running from Saul all over again. And the people that he saved, what do they do? They turn him in. So, you know, it's kind of a crazy, crazy scenario. And we know that David was feeling kind of down at this point. If you read Psalms 52 through 59, it, it talks about a lot of the discouragement, a lot of the fear that he was feeling, um, his desire for God to vindicate him. God, where are you? Kind of a, that kind of a sense of a thing. And I think any of us would be discouraged at this point. Uh, you serve God, you do the best you can, you risk your life to save others, and all you get is more and more and more trouble. It doesn't make any sense. But there's a biblical principle here that's important. One writer put it this way, a period of God's blessing is often followed by deep personal discouragement. Okay? A period of God's blessing. In other words, God just blesses you for whatever. A lot of times it's, it's followed by a, a period in your life of deep personal discouragement. Um, 
You see it a lot in the Bible. Over and over. Remember Elijah? Had that great victory over the prophets of Baal? And then what's he do? He runs away and he hides by this brook and he's in deep depression. You know, that, this is what happens. And there's a lot of, many great Christians testify of this fact. They go through this dark time in their life in which God seems so very, very, very far away. Um, it often happens that when God is about to honor us, what's he do? He humbles us before he honors us. He humbles us, and he brings us into this period of kind of depression or sorrow, you might say. And when God wants to raise us up, he first casts us down. That's just a biblical principle, that we can totally learn what it means to depend on him wholly. And in some ways, David is now worse off than before he entered this city. Uh, The harder he tries, the worse it gets. Um, But it's at this time that God sends a friend. Look at verse verse, uh, 15. He's in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish, and Jonathan, remember his son, or his, his friend, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. God brought him along right at the right time. In verse 17, it says, He said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. <laughs> he, he realizes David's feeling a little trapped. He's feeling a little down. He's probably depressed. He reminds him, You shall be king over Israel. And you know what? I'm going to be right here next to you. I'm going to help you right along the way. And not only that, but you know what? My father Saul knows this stuff. How he knows that, I don't know. Maybe he told him. And so the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and David remained at Horish, and Jonathan went home. So God sent Jonathan to strengthen David's hand just at the appropriate time. Uh, And this is the, the finest thing that a friend can do. For another friend. I mean, you know, he, he didn't show up and just, yeah, way to go, David, chin up, man, you got this thing, don't worry about it, you know. I mean, he probably did a little of that, but he also reminded David of the promises of God. You see that? He says, right now, you know, you, things aren't looking very good, they're looking kind of bleak. You know what? You're going to be king, because God said you would be, David. God has promised it, and he will do it. And they soon parted, and as far as we can tell, the Bible doesn't indicate that they ever saw each other again. Now, these were incredible friends. Again, you see the timing of a sovereign God in somebody's life. Perfect timing. At just the right moment, Jonathan shows up. I mean, we could all go around the room and probably explain times in our life where just the right moment, somebody spoke a word or somebody came along with an encouraging thing or with caring hand or whatever it might have been. And lifted us from that, that deep despair that we were in. You know, these aren't coincidences. When God puts us in the wilderness, he always is faithful to send someone like Jonathan to encourage us. Through everything that's happening to him, David is being weaned away from the world he knows. His sorrows are teaching him that nothing in this world can satisfy just that's what's happening friends come and go no one stays in one place forever he's having to move around our health fails eventually life 
itself comes to an end. All earthly treasures as we know it, beloved, fade. And eventually we're faced with the eternal. The only thing that lasts forever is God and his word. And only he can satisfy us forever. And so verse 19, here we see where David is at this rock, they call it. It says, then the, the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, is not David hiding among us in the strongholds of Horish? Another, another people rat him out. Okay, this is just David's luck. On the hill of Hakala, which is south of Jezimon. Verse 20, now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. In other words, we're going to help you out here, Saul, and we're going to give you what you want. And Saul said, look at his pious reply here, may you be blessed by the Lord. You know, why? Because this is what he wants. It's not what God wants, but he doesn't care about that. So he's using the name of God really in vain. That's what people do all the time who you know, preach false gospel, preach this. They use the name of the Lord to invoke sympathy and money from people, whatever, just to further their own agenda. They're not interested in really helping people. They're not interested in really knowing God's truth. They're interested in their agenda. They're interested in robbing you of your money and, and continuing to provide for themselves. For you have had compassion on me. Notice how he's painting this. Poor Saul. You know, poor... And, and look at the words that he uses here. Go, make yet more sure. In other words, look, I'm not going to waste my time with you guys. If he's really there, Okay. But I've been down this road before, and I've been chasing this guy all over the place. I don't have time to play games anymore. You go see if he's really there, and then you can go back. And if he is, then I'll come. He says, know and see the place where his foot is. In other words, I actually want you to almost put hands on David for me, who has seen him there. For it is told me that he is very cunning. See how he's painting David? Oh, now this, 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 this rebel, this person who's a refugee here running, he's a criminal, he's very cunning, he's sneaky. See, therefore, and take note of all the, look at the word, lurking places where he hides. I mean, it makes him out to be like some mass robber in the middle of the night or something. And come back to me with sure information. Then I will go with you. In other words, I'm not going down there just to find another empty cave or to chase a another empty trail. I want to make sure that he's there. And if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. So he shows you his desire, right? I mean, he doesn't care if it's thousands, tens of thousands. He's going to find this guy if he knows he's there. And they arose and went to Ziph uh, ahead of Saul. Now this village of Ziph was in the territory of the tribe of Judah. It was kind of in their county, you might say. Well, guess what tribe David was from? Judah, right? Okay. So you think that, I mean, you would have reason to expect that these people would at least help him out. 
you know, protect him maybe. They're his kinsmen. But instead, what did they do? They sold him out to King Saul by revealing his location. This is how low David is right now. I mean, even his own hometown people are turning on him. Um, and Saul's response shows how utterly he misunderstands the situation. He, he mouths godly words, but his heart is utterly full of evil. No doubt he thought that he had David trapped for this time for sure. So the men of Ziph, they go back home, locate David in the wilderness. They send a message to Saul who leads his army after him. Eventually, they locate uh, David. It says, now David, there in verse 24, now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon in the Arabah in the south of Jezimon. And Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that he had pursued David, he pursued David into the wilderness of Maon. In other words, this time he's not going to give up. He just wants to keep on going, going, and finally, hopefully, catch him. So they start this kind of merry-go-round situation here. So Saul, verse 26, went on one side of the mountain, and David's on the other side of the mountain. So they're chasing each other around this section of mountains. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger, I mean, you couldn't write this, right? This is so good. A messenger came to Saul and said, Hey, king, hurry up, come. The Philistines have made a raid against the land. In other words, we're in a big world of hurt. Major Philistine invasion going on here. Verse 28. I mean, he almost has him. What has to happen? Saul returns from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Saul is a warrior. I mean, Saul leads people into battle. But here he almost does it probably reluctantly. So it must have been a very, very serious situation. Because before with the other city member, he didn't care. But here he does. So maybe the threat of the Philistines overthrowing his kingdom for a second there became more great than his threat from David. It says, so Saul returned from pursuing David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. Um, I mean, it's kind of a... Do you remember the old... I guess there are silent movies, the Keystone Cop movies, you know, they'd be chasing each That's what this is like almost. I mean, it really is. You know, you, you have, here comes Saul chasing David, and David sees him, and then, you know, it's just like going round and round and round, and, you know, Saul's edging closer and closer, but then, you know, he's finally ready to go in for the kill, and suddenly this messenger arrives out of nowhere with news that the Philistines have invaded the land, and, and uh, that really, Saul shouldn't care about that. He didn't care before. Perhaps this time the invaders came much deeper into the territory. We don't know. But he has to cut off. And so they, his man, David and his men named this place the Rock of Escape because God delivered them there. Okay, He literally delivered David and his men. And behind all this, okay, all this is going on in live time, but behind all this you see this invisible hand of God 
intervening just at the right time. Every time. Uh, and to, to make matters more, I guess, ironic would be the word, think about it. God is now using his enemies, who are who? The Philistines, right? God is using the Philistines to save his servant David. <laughs> the Philistines are David's enemies, but now God's using the Philistines to save David from Saul. I mean, it's just, it's just crazy. And so you, you, you learn a couple truths here. First of all, God sometimes allows his servants to be reduced to desperation. Sometimes God allows us to go through times where, you know what, we, we are just in a bad place. Secondly, he never allows them to stay in the state of desperation without sending divine aid, divine aid. God will always help us. God will always provide that. Maybe not in our time, but in his time. And then third, he often delivers them at the moment of greatest peril. Here Saul's just about ready to capture David. And wow, this, you know, this messenger comes out of nowhere. And then fourth, he makes use of varied and unexpected means. And so David here is still on the run. He's still in trouble. He's still hiding from Saul. But you know what? Along the way, what's happening? God is protecting him every step at every step his escape into the desert is a it's really a miracle of god's timing and saul chases david around the mountain he comes closer and closer and closer finally he moves to capture him and just then in the nick of time this messenger arrives hey we got to go i mean think about all the things that happened here the philistines had to attack at just the right moment a messenger had to be dispatched to find the king Someone at the palace had to know where the king was to dispatch, dispatch the messenger. The messenger had to get precise directions to find the king, and he had to arrive just before David was about to be captured. I mean, that's a lot of things that just happened. <laughs> okay? I mean, if the messenger got lost, maybe he doesn't make it there in time. Maybe Saul captures and kills David. Uh, so you see the hand of God. Behind the scenes, protecting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it's just called the rock of escape. You know, I, I think they. Well, I mean, you can maybe apply it that way. I don't think, no, I don't think, you know, I don't, I don't see it that way, but, you know, I don't know if anybody else. Because the other explanation is the division. Right, right. Yeah. Who can be interpreted rock of escape or rock of division? Right. To, to kind of divide the David from Saul is what the idea was, but. So, you know, either way, I, you know, yeah, I don't, I mean, you can think of it that way, but it's not, right. No, I, yeah, yeah, I know that, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what I'm saying. You can loosely kind of apply that, but I don't think it's in the text here. No, no. But, but I think it's important to realize that, I mean, you know, here is, is David um, at this close call, and, and I wonder if he's maybe thinking in his mind before he wrote Psalm 23, verse 5, you prepare 
a table before me in the presence of my enemies, you know, because that's kind of what's happening here. I mean, you know, and yet God, God provides a way out. Um, I think at times we all find ourselves in the wilderness, and I, I think there's a couple things that we can apply to our own lives as we close out chapter 23 here. First of all, when your circumstances are confusing, remember that who is in control? That God is in control. You're not in control. Your circumstances are not in control. People around you are not in control. I mean, it's easy to believe that God is in control when the sun is shining and you have money in the bank and good job and marriage and everything's wonderful, children, no health problems, the future looks bright. Oh, that's wonderful. But when the money runs out and the boss fires you and your spouse leaves you and your children disappoint you and your health fails (laughs) and your friends desert you, is God still on the throne? Um, Or is your God just a God for the good times in life? See, that's... That's, you, you have to kind of discern that now in your mind. Um, the thought occurs as I think about that. You know, there's people all around the world. In Sudan, Somalia, India, Indonesia, the Middle Eastern countries. There are Christians in all those countries who are under severe persecution for their faith. Severe persecution. I mean, in fear of their lives. If they were just to gather or to be found with a Bible. And they live in dangerous circumstances, difficult, chaotic circumstances every day. Yet, what do they do? They trust the Lord. They're called to trust the Lord, even to the point of death. And should we do any, any less? Um, remember what I said at the beginning of this chapter. Just because you don't see God, you don't feel God, you don't hear God, that doesn't mean that he isn't there. Uh, your emotions, your senses are not reliable to be a guide for presence, for God's presence. Whether you feel him or not, he's always there, and he's always in control. Secondly, when you're tempted to panic, turn to the Lord. (laughs) When you're tempted to panic, turn to the Lord. There's so many believers who turn away from the Lord in a time of trouble. They turn away. They don't turn to. Um... But how will you know about turning away from God? Um, you know, how do you, how do you do this? When life is crumbling around you, how do you know you're turning away from, from God and not to Him? Uh, if you run from God, you're really abandoning your only source of help. He's the only consistent source you have. When hard times come, we need to trust the Lord. And, you know, we hear that all the time, but we really need to believe it. We need to trust not only the Lord, but we need to trust the Lord's people. Uh, we need to trust the Word of God. We need to trust the church we participate in. Uh, we need to trust the hymns and the prayers, uh, things like the Lord's Supper, bath, all those things. We need to trust all those things to reorient us to what is really true. Because sometimes in these emotional states, we get all discombobulated. And we begin to believe the lies from the enemy. If you turn from God's appointed means of grace, the world has nothing better to offer. You're not going to figure this out on your own. Thirdly, when you don't know what else to do, do God's will even if it doesn't make any sense to you. If God has told you to do something, just do it. He didn't, you know, he doesn't have to check with you and say, now, do you understand? Does this make sense to you? Because most of the time, 
when I've been in a situation where I really needed to trust the Lord, what I was about to do did not make sense, logically. It just didn't. And I wouldn't do that if it wasn't other than God's leading. And so it's, you know, if you've ever been in the wilderness, if you've ever been in a place that's desolate, it's very easy without a compass to get disoriented. Um, I remember one time I got lost in the woods and I just kept walking. I was like, wait a minute, I'm walking in circles. What am I doing? You know, you just get disoriented. And then, you know, the cover of darkness, it, it, it just gets worse. And that's what happens when we're in a state of panic, when we're in a state of uh, kind of being in the wilderness or depressed or whatever. We, we, we begin to lose orientation to, to where God really is. And sometimes people shut down altogether because they don't know what to do. They don't know where to go. They just stop. They stop living. Um. I'm impressed that when God told David to fight the Philistines at Calah, he got up and he obeyed the law. He obeyed the Lord. He just did it. See, that's the safest. It seems logically that would be the, the most dangerous thing to do, but really that's the safest thing to do. When God tells us to do it, it doesn't matter what the circumstances are. The safest thing you can do is just obey what the Lord is telling you to do. Uh, they thought they were safer in the forest, but God knew better. Uh, he can deliver us on an open plain in front of our enemy just as well as the forest. He doesn't need trees and caves to protect his people. The safest place in the world is doing whatever God has called you to do, wherever God has called you to do it. Um, I remember before I came to this church, I was working for the district attorney's office. I loved my job, paid okay, had a car, badge, thought it was great. And I remember when this church invited me to come up here to kind of possibly be their pastor i had to make a decision it's like and it was you know it was kind of a hard decision at first because i'm thinking wow do i really want to leave this (laughs) to go back to what i know ministry is (laughs) you know um and yet god spoke very clearly to my heart no this is what i've called you to do so whether it's there or anywhere you know um i will lead you and you know it, it it was uh at first, it was kind of a daunting decision, but after that decision was made, God opened up the door clearly. So if you're where God wants you to be, then God himself is there with you, and you're the safest person, really, in the whole universe. Um, and then the fourth thing here, when deliverance comes, don't forget to thank God and give him the glory. Uh, sooner or later, like I said, God always delivers his people, right? He always does. You don't stay in the wilderness forever. None of us do. And so when God's purpose has been fulfilled in that time in your life, he'll bring you out. He'll bring you to a better place. And when that day comes, don't sit there and take all the accolades for yourself. You give God the glory. Um, There's there's too many what they call foxhole Christians who cry out to Jesus in times of trouble, but when the trouble's over, they forget Jesus altogether. Uh, Don't be like that. And when God delivers you, make sure you stand up and shout clearly that it hadn't been for the Lord, I wouldn't be here today. Uh, God would not be on my side. My feet would have slipped. I would have fallen, whatever you might want to say. But it's very important that you give God credit. Uh, he wants to shape us. He wants to mold us. And sometimes that comes through tough times. Well, let's continue here in, in verse or chapter 24. And... Uh, We'll move on here. When Saul, verse 1, when Saul returned from following the Philistines, 
he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. And then Saul took, look at this, 3,000 chosen men out of all of Israel. It's like, this is it. I'm going to finally get him. <laughs> you know, he's really building up the army here. And he went to see David and his men in front of the wild goats, wild goats rocks. And this is, by the way, an excellent place for him to hide. Uh, it's on the, the western shore of the, the Dead Sea. And there's just barren mountains, and it goes straight up. It's really, like I said, it's on your way there to Masada, if you've ever been over there. And it's just a very daunting place. Um, and so he, he continues here, and he says, verse 3, And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Go to the restroom. Okay. So he goes in, in the cave. And uh, while Saul attends to his business, apparently there's 600 pairs of eyes <laughs> watching him through the darkness. And because uh, they're in the cave and he didn't know it. And now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. So this is a huge cave. I mean, he's got, remember how many people he's got? He's got 600 people with him. David does. And they're hiding in this cave. And it just so happens that Saul's up there looking for him, and oh, I've got to go to the bathroom. So he goes in this cave. I mean, you know, God couldn't have arranged this any better. And uh, verse, verse 4, And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Now, at this point, his men are probably thinking, wow, this is incredible. Right there he is. Let's just, just take him out. Let's get him. But it's David's call. I mean, they understand what's going on here. Uh, while Saul was preoccupied, apparently David crept up, <laughs> cut off a corner of his robe. He used to wear robes back then. Um, I think it was probably just a, a joke, maybe. They're like, okay, I'm going to show this guy really what's going on here. And he said, uh, David rose stealthily, cut off a corner of Saul's robe, and afterward, after he did this, um, his, his heart was convicted. And so Saul puts his robe back on. He's going to be wearing this miniskirt because he cut part of it off. And, uh, and here's the explanation there in in verse uh, verse six, verse six says, or verse five says, and afterwards David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Why? When he tell him? Well, we're going to find out. Verse six. He said to his men, "The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord." In other words. He's looking at Saul as the king. And he's like, hey, wait a minute. I've I got to kind of make sure I'm doing the right thing here. To the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. 
I mean, talk about a turn of events. This doesn't even, it's like, what are you doing? You know, it's like a, like a spy novel or something. Why are they letting him go? Um, it's just crazy. And the rest of, of up to this point, basically, the rest of chapter 24 contains two speeches. One by David and one by Saul. And, and that's what we're going to look at. Saul leaves the, the cave to rejoin his men. He doesn't have any clue what's going on. Nothing at all. And, uh, um, you know, you, 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 why didn't David get revenge? Why didn't David kill Saul when he had the chance? Um, you know, sometimes God has a way of teaching us something here. Um, somebody once said this, that uh, you don't have control over other people. You only have control over yourself. Okay? Um, we have no control over what people would do. Sometimes, even in will say, well, you know, if I forgive this person or if I tell them I'm sorry, they're going to... Who cares? It doesn't matter. You can't control what they're going to do. You can't control the reaction of your spouse. You can only do the right thing. You know, love them, respect them. If they treat you in a wrongful way, that's on them. You know, or your boss or whoever, neighbor, whatever it might say. You might say, you don't have control over how people treat you. You don't have control over what they say. You don't have even control over what they do. But you have complete control over how you respond. You know, you're never going to get to the point where you're going to stop people from attacking you, by maligning you. You're never going to get to the point where you're going to have people that keep all their promises. You're never going to stop people from trying to maybe take advantage of you or replace you or whatever. That's just the way... It is. That's how life is. But how should you respond when you've been hurt? Um, You see here a couple things. In David's speech in verses 8 to 15, he gives three reasons, basically. And we'll just go over these quickly, why David didn't take revenge. He says, Afterward, David also rose and went into the cave and, and called after Saul. He said, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, can you imagine like, wait a minute, in there. Go on to the bathroom. David bowed his face to the earth, look at this, and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks you harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you. But you know what? I didn't listen. I spared you, he says. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. At this point, Saul's probably thinking, what are you talking about? What do you mean you gave it? You could have killed me. And yet, for by the fact that I have cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you, 
may the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? He's saying, who am I to you? What have I ever done to you? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause to deliver me from your hand. So what does David say here? First of all, he says, you know what? I I don't seek revenge on Saul's life because I respect Saul's authority over him. He was the the reigning king, even though that was soon going to come to end. Uh, he calls him there in verse 8, my lord the king. In verse 10, he says, I will not lift my hand against my master because he is the Lord's anointed. I mean, who chose Saul to be king all the way back? You remember? It was God. It was because the people wanted him, but God chose him. And it was Samuel who was arguing with God, saying, this isn't a good choice, what are you doing? Remember? But God chose him to be king. And so by what authority does Saul occupy the throne of Israel? By God's authority. And we know that it's not going to be forever. We know that it's been taken from him because of his disobedience, but that's not played out yet. That's to come. (laughs) And if a man is God's anointed, good or bad, he is not to be touched. And so it's, it's very important you know in the military they have this phrase they say you don't salute the man you salute the rank i mean the guy could be a total jerk but you have to salute him if he's an officer that's just the way it works you know it's the same way in our political system you know you don't have to love the president you don't have to love our governor you have respect for their authority you should have respect for the office they hold not the, necessarily the man that holds it. So that's a very important thing to understand. David had every reason to get even with Saul. Every reason. I mean, he was a killer. He was the psycho guy on the throne. He had paranoia issues. He was just, you know, over the edge, you might say. I mean, David would really be doing a favor for the people by killing him. But he didn't do it. Why? Because he recognized Saul's authority. Secondly, David did not seek revenge because he was willing to wait for God to vindicate him. See, sometimes we want to take things into our own hands, right? We want to make the change. We want to do the thing. But as he says there in verses 11 to 12, look, I could have done this, but I didn't. May the Lord, in verse 12, avenge me against you. But my hand's not going to do it. I'm not going to do this. Um. First, David wasn't shy about pointing out the truth here. He says plainly that Saul has wronged him. He didn't cower before Saul because he was the king. He pointed out very clearly, I've never done anything to you. What are you, what are you trying to kill me for? Uh, he didn't say, oh, you know, we're both right. Let's just like get along. Uh, he didn't say that. And that's what you have going on a lot today. Um, Saul was wrong. David knew he was wrong, and he plainly said so. But David understand, stood a, a second fact here. When it comes to revenge, God is much better at it than we are. <laughs> we always mess it up. We end up in sin every time we try to get revenge. It's just let God deal with it. 
You know, he sees the side of every issue. He sees everything that's going on. He's in complete control. He knows who's right. He knows who's wrong. And often our perspective is what? It's clouded. It's clouded by emotions. It's clouded by uh, sin. It's clouded by faulty judgment. Usually we see our side and our side only. But God knows. And he's not going to avenge. He's not going to forget to avenge the wrongs of his children. Uh, One man, James Russell Lau, wrote these words. He says, Truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. Yet the scaffold, scaffold sways the future and behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. See, the way it is, is truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. That's sometimes how it feels even with our own government, right? Even in this topsy-turvy world, you see guys that keep on winning that are doing the wrong thing, you might say. And you know what? You can count on one thing, that God stands in the shadows, keeping watch over everything. And God knew that, or David knew that God was able, he was ready, he was willing to take care of him at the appropriate time. And so whenever God got ready, Saul would be out of the way, and David would ascend to the throne. You know, and he didn't need David's help to do it either. Even when David was clearly the better man, even when Saul went nuts, even when God had rejected Saul, he still didn't need David's help. Uh, Sometimes we commit a lot of sins because we get God's way. We think that somehow he needs our help. And uh, because of our emotions and our passion or whatever, we want to get things done right away and we're painted in a corner maybe and we, we make stupid decisions. Because we're not willing to wait for God to take care of things. Well, the third thing here is David did not seek revenge because he did not want to descend to Saul's level. That's the third principle found in verse 13 there. He talks about this proverb, out of the wickedness comes wickedness. But my hand shall not be against you. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of when you're a little kid and maybe somebody would call you a name or someone would pick on you. And your parents would say, you know what, you just, you just do the right thing. You don't sink to their level. You know, that's really what, what David is telling Saul. I'm not, I'm not going to come down to your level. I'm not going to go toe-to-toe to you on this. Um, Farmer once said it this way, never wrestle with a pig because you're bound to get dirty. Okay, that's very true. You know, and there are times when you just need to walk away from an argument because if you open up your mouth, you're going to be wrestling with a pig. (laughs) And you're going to get dirty. Something's going to happen. It's it's a bad thing that's going to happen. Uh, Revenge makes you go through the hurt over and over and over again, but you really, really never get over it. You need to kind of let that go and ultimately let God deal with it. So what happens here, basically, is these, these... three steps in the right direction. He recognized Saul's authority. He was willing to wait for God. And he did not want to descend to Saul's level. Um, you can't control what people say about us or what they do to us. But you have to understand that God is in control. So how practically do we kind of boil this this down here? Um, as you look at the end here in verse in Saul, verse 
he speaks. As soon as David, verse 16, as soon as David was finished speaking these words to Saul, look at what Saul said. Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. Wow. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. Sounds like a New Testament concept, doesn't it? What did Jesus say? We're to love our enemies. Verse 18. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. So Saul is even recognizing here that, well, I'm seeing that God is kind of in control of the situation. I am not, even though I'm the king. Verse 19. For if a man finds his enemy... Will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me therefore by the Lord that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul wouldn't have done that anyway because his his offspring was his friend, right, Jonathan? Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Well, as you you get mistreatment from others or you get the temptation to become evil, practical suggestions, watch your words. You know, many times I've been angry and I've said things that I've totally regretted. And sometimes pressure we blurt things out that are just wrong. Um and uh, Proverbs 10:19 says, "When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent." Uh, secondly, watch your words. Secondly, focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we're called to be like the Master. We're called to be like our Savior. We're we're not called to just go off and do whatever we want. Uh, we're called to be like Jesus, who in Luke 23:34 says, "Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing." when they're crucifying him. That's the heart that we need to understand. First uh, Peter 2.21 says this, For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so you might follow in his footsteps. That's, that's the footsteps we're to, to follow in. So watch your words, focus on Christ, and then thirdly, lay down your burden. In other words, some people... Just need to give up. You need to stop fighting. Just stop. You know, sooner or later, you just got to put down the enemy or put down your weapon and, and give them over to God's hands. Um, sometimes, unfortunately, people are chained to their past because they will not let go of remembered hurts. That, that happens all the time. In the end, the desire for revenge hurts you more than it hurts anyone else. Uh, You've probably heard this, but it's a phrase that people use often. Seeking revenge is like drinking poison and praying for the other person to die. (laughs) That's really what it is. It's like taking the poison yourself, drinking it, and saying, I hope you die because I'm drinking this poison. That's what revenge does. Um, So just you know it's time to just let things go and i think sometimes you know we all have issues in our lives 
things, but you see how God had arranged all this and clearly for his glory, um, sovereignly took care of David, even when he was down and out and depressed. Uh, he, he took care of everything right along the way. Let's close in a word of prayer, and then uh, we can answer any questions. Father, we just thank you for your word tonight. Thank you for these examples of your grace, your, uh, your patience with us. Uh, Lord, sometimes we seek revenge. Sometimes we want to do things our way, and yet, Lord, we clearly see that you're a God who's in control of all these things. And uh, I pray that even tonight that the healing might begin in our hearts. Forgive us for many times when we try to excuse our behavior or make rationalizations that just don't add up. Uh, and I pray that you would expose the even the bitterness in our own hearts at times and pray that we would uh, respond in a way that would be honoring to you like your son when we are unfairly accused or unfairly treated. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that gives us the power to overcome the temptation, seek revenge uh, when we're wronged. And Lord, we can extend the hand of forgiveness and grace and love instead. And so we just pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.